Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. And I have my old friend back who has a new name, incidentally. Uh, <laughs> it's real. <laughs> but I still get confused. Is it Reverend Dr. Angie yeah. McCarty? Okay, I never know if yes. it's Dr. Reverend or Reverend. Yes. So it's Reverend is considered priority. Doctor I, is closest to your name. You're Dr. Angie now. I know. Yay! Thank you. This was such a long time in coming for you. How long did you dream about it? How long did it take you? And how does it feel now that you have crossed that finish line? I remember after my third kiddo was born, knowing he would be the last, number last, right? Um, I remember thinking, gosh, I would love to go back to school and get my doctorate and had a couple of, of ideas for what I would study. And of course, this was one of them. This was the one that won. Um, but I couldn't ever justify the cost because in our system, there's not a, a necessary step of advancement in United Methodism, it's not like something would open to me that was closed before. Um, and it really is just a title and self advancement, self-satisfaction. Right. Um, so I put it off. He's almost 15 years old now. So 15 years ago was when I first started thinking about it. Then mm -hmm. I married the most amazing man on the planet. I moved to Kansas, started working at Church of the Resurrection, and one of the things that they ascribe to are the Gallup Strengths Training um, yes. model. I mean, it's amazing. So I did that as a part of the staff, and my first uh, first strength was learning, mm. and and I having that identified allowed me to say, "Oh, I wanted to do this because this is how God designed me." Exactly. It's not an obligation that you have to your career or congregation. This is how you're wired. You are naturally hungry to learn. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was that day or two days later that I applied at St. <laughs> Paul's School of Theology and decided to, uh, to study this particular topic and the purity movement. And I graduated on May 12th was graduation day. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank Such you. Accomplishment. But I didn't just invite Angie on the show to gush about her accomplishments. I have been fascinated by your dissertation topic. And now that it is complete, I just really want to like drag you up to the top of a mountain and, and let you shout it from the mountaintop <laughs> in a megaphone and like pipe it into everyone's homes because I feel as if you have discovered some of the most groundbreaking revelations and epiphanies that explain so much of the mystery of what the hell just happened in our society over the past 30 to 40 years. Is that how you would identify it? Yep. Yep. Okay. So as yeah. we look in the rearview mirror, just so I can kind of set the stage for everyone with what I'm talking about. When we look at the rearview mirror, you know, we went through a period called the 70s where the pendulum swung really hard away from the Vietnam era. That the Vietnam era was all about war, a war that caused a lot of strife and division because there's a lot of people who didn't feel like we should be over there. And then when the pendulum swung hard against the war, 
side, it was to the love side. And it became make love, not war was the mantra. And in with that was a lot of, uh, I mean, I was, I was 10 in the seventies, but um, a lot of drug use, a lot of hallucinogens, a lot of long hair, a lot of hippie movement stuff that come 1981, I think was probably when the lid blew off of this whole hippie revolution thing. And what happened was that AIDS was discovered and there was all kinds of assumptions made about this um, this disease, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And it, it ushered in a whole new era, which I would label the purity movement mm-hmm. era. But I would venture to say that it wasn't until the, 19, the late 1980s, early 1990s, that it really picked up steam and became something so much bigger than mm-hmm. what any of us ever fathomed possible. And that, in my opinion, it wasn't just a hard pendulum swing to correct the wildness of the 70s. It became an imprinting, a sexual imprinting on several generations of people. And that what we're learning now is that that imprinting was not so positive, that it was actually incredibly negative. Harmful. Yes. Damaging. That that's what I'm seeing in my coaching office for the past several years, decade or more. And so I have been wondering what have we done as a church, as a society, as individual quote abstinence educators from way back in the day when I've certainly tried to evolve away from just that negative side of the purity movement um, and be a more broad sexuality educator but i've been questioning what were we a part of and what damage did we do and we've we've had some conversation around it in the past but never this deeply and never this directly so i'm just going to go on the record as saying i'm basically giving angie the platform for the rest of the summer we're going to unpack this until <laughs> we're done it may be several episodes Uh, because I think that we've created a big mess that we need to take ownership of and help people heal. And so with that, Angie, tell us the brilliant title of your dissertation. Oh, the brilliant title is Messy Sex, A Complicated Sexual Ethic to Heal the Damage Done by the Purity Movement. So you didn't dance around it. You just put your feet directly in the fire. Well, and here's the thing. The reason I picked messy sex as the title was solely because I wanted some old dude to have to say that at graduation, like, and then the whole room, like I, I pictured them going, (gasps) but it's a pretty liberal theological school. And so actually, as I walked across the stage, everyone was clapping as they read my title. And so nobody heard it anyway. It was printed in the book, though. It was printed in the graduation program. Well, there you go. Well, I have long said sex is messy. Mm -hmm. Family is messy. Marriage is messy. Intimacy is messy. So let's dive right in. I want to have for sure a three-part conversation on as a pastor, 
what have you seen over the past? How long have you been a pastor now? Has it been like 30 years? 30 years? Yeah. I was thinking yeah. that you, you were entering into the ministry about the same time as I was launching my ministry. Um, so 30 years, what have you seen? What have you learned from parishioners and, you know, wherever mm -hmm. you've researched? And then, you know, finally, wh where did the research take you? What epiphanies have you derived? And, and let me just also say really fast before I just turn it over to Angie to just blah, 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 just share mm -hmm. all this with us. I want to say from a hermeneutical standpoint, some of you have heard me use that expression, that, that word, some of you have not. So let me just back up for one quick second. We cannot open the Bible and just read something and say, well, this is what it means to me. Because that was not how the Bible was intended to be read. It's a very irresponsible way of reading it. There is a science and an art to properly interpreting scripture. Yep. And properly interpreting scripture is always an utmost priority. And I will say that there is no one on the planet that I trust more than Reverend Dr. Angie McCarty, because she she is not just a lay pastor. She's not just certified by some organization where she took a video curriculum like she went to southern methodist university perkins school of theology you mentioned it was saint paul saint paul school, school of, theology of theology that you got your yep. doctorate from and so i know that you have made it your utmost priority to have integrity in yes. how you go about this topic and how you interpret scripture and how you apply it to today's culture so with all that being said, I'm going to ask everyone to suspend their judgment. There's going to be things that you hear Angie say or us talk about where you're immediately going to go, that's not right. That's not right. Because I've heard it this way. All I'm asking you to do is just suspend your judgment during you know, the listening of these episodes and just, just listen and just see what you can learn. Because the reality is all of us have just been regurgitating what we've been taught and told. Yeah. And we've been taught and told a lot of things that quite frankly, aren't true and aren't an accurate derivative of scripture's meaning and intention. So I'm just going to say, I have known Angie personally for 30 years. I have watched her evolve as a pastor, as a person, as a parent, as an educator. And again, there's no one that I would rather have on this show to dive this deep into this topic than you, Angie. So thank you for taking the time to come on here oh. and do this with me this summer. Of course. It's messy. Thank you so much. Messy is the name of the game. I agree with everything you said. As I think about the hermeneutic, as I think about the, the act of interpreting scripture, I like to think of it as a continuum because almost everything in life exists on a continuum, right? And so on one side, we would have biblical literalism. So people who say the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And, and that is a way that a lot of people interpret scripture. And, and in that meaning that you interpret everything that is said as a literal command. Yes. Not in that figurative is not a lens that they look through. Correct. And cultural context is usually not a lens that is applied 
to that method of biblical interpretation. On the other end of the spectrum, you would have people who say, um, this is not an inspired work. God is not active in this. Human beings wrote this and it's just a book. I'm not okay. there, um, but, but I want to acknowledge that that continuum exists. And okay. to say that Christians interpret scripture the same way is is totally ridiculous mm -mm. <laughs> that christianity we can't itself, possibly no it exists on a spectrum and so what i have tried to do in biblical interpretation and in piecing out this very complicated issue is to look at the cultural context in which the biblical writings were created and then redacted and then every translation involves interpretation we right. cannot get away from that um, right we are humans and we always figure our lived experience into our approach of scripture and that's not a bad thing and, and i feel like it would probably be helpful for us for people who have never had a hermeneutics class since we're going to be referring back to that as the framework for this conversation the five hermeneutical questions that you need to ask whenever you're looking at a passage of scripture. So if I recall from my hermeneutics days, um, it's who is doing the speaking or writing? Who are they speaking or writing to? What were the words that they used specifically? What language? How does that translate to the English language? Um, what was the cultural context, what was happening in that day, in that era that necessitated that conversation? And then fifth, how does it apply to our culture today? Because so if scripture is a living, breathing document that still speaks to us today, then we have to read it in light of our context and yes. can't, can't really do anything but that. Right. And, and let me just give an example so that people will understand what we're referring to with literal and figurative and hermeneutical translation and all that. There is a passage in scripture that's repeated multiple times to greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, if you're going to take that literally, then we are sinning if we just shake their hand or hug their neck because we're supposed to greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, but we're not France, we're America, and most countries don't, that a kiss would not be a standard greeting, but does that mean that we're being disobedient to scripture? And especially in the post-COVID era, it's more like air hug, fist bump, yeah, that was the greeting. So is the Bible saying that we're supposed to kiss? No, when you translate it to our current traditions, it's that we're to greet one another warmly and sincerely. And what that would look like for us would be a handshake or a hug or just a smile and a hello. So understand when we say, you know, the Bible isn't intended to be, not everything is intended to be taken literally. I mean that, that literally there are passages that are in, that are to be interpreted, interpreted figuratively and then applied to our culture. So yes, it gets messy. Even just interpreting the Bible can be messy. But let me also add another disclaimer before I keep wanting to add all these disclaimers. <laughs> Everyone will shut up soon and let you have the floor. There may be people listening to this podcast who hold no spiritual paradigm, who don't consider themselves Christians or consider themselves recovering. 
Christians mm-hmm. or Catholics or whatever. And I would say, you know what? We're not trying to sell anything. We're not trying to get you to drink the Kool-Aid. We're not trying to evangelize to you. But if you think that in any way, shape or form, you have been imprinted or impacted by this purity movement, then please just chew up the meat and spit out the bones. We're we're not trying to preach a sermon. We're trying to heal damage that's been yeah. done in a lot of people. So there you go. Yeah. Perfect. So let me just tag on to that. I thought about three assumptions that you have to understand about my work and about me if you are to um, consider this with an open heart. So the first one is if you hold very tight to biblical literalism, this is going to be hard for you because you will read scriptures that say flee sexual immorality and, and you have a picture of what that means in your mind. And that's that. Um, What I tried to do is to flee biblical literalism to come to a middle ground where we take the Bible seriously. And in that provide a greater sense of authenticity, transparency, and even um, the acknowledgement that we don't have all the answers. To this very complicated question. So that's kind of the first thing I thought of. Um, the second thing I thought of is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And this is one of the reasons why I am proud to be a United Methodist pastor, um, but grew up United Methodist. So what that says is that there are four criteria for interpreting issues of faith or uh, scriptural issues. So the first is, in fact, scripture. We go to scripture first. So anyone who says that United Methodists don't believe in the Bible is not right because scripture is first, it's primary. The second uh, criteria that we use is tradition. And that's with a capital T. So not, um, we put the Christmas on the tree in our church on the second Sunday of Advent. The tradition with a capital T would refer to Christendom and its history and its teachings. We wanna know what Christendom has taught uh, but our forefathers, the, right, right, believe. throughout the the centuries, millennium, um, scripture, tradition, reason. Don't check your brain at the door. God gave us brains to sort through complicated issues, and I believe in our reasoning. The Holy Spirit is in that, in the use of of our fantastic brains, which are just incredible. And then finally, um, United Methodists value our experience, the lived, our lived history and the experiences that we have in our lives speak to and inform the way we approach matters of faith. So scripture, tradition, reason, and experience um, are kind of the four pieces that affect me uh, when I approach a topic. So that's the second thing. And then finally, um, I think we have to make a decision about culture. So one of my favorite verses in scripture is do not conform to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So some people may look at my work and say, you are just conforming to a culture that has decided premarital sex is okay. And you're trying to make a justification for that. No, culture evolves, whether we like it or not. When we look back in the first centuries 
uh, of, of the church. I mean, right after Jesus died, was resurrected and then ascended into heaven. Um, it, it doesn't take a brain scientist to say, yeah, that culture was a lot different than what we are experiencing now. If we stayed, if we, the church Christendom stayed stuck in that culture, we'd be completely irrelevant. And so rather and dangerous in the culture yes. where women were stoned for well, and women were taught. property. And right. we go a little bit further into the 1800s and the church sanctioned slavery. Right. So, so I, I think that many, most of us would agree culture changes and it's the church's job to respond to those cultural changes faithfully. So, I so that we can continue to be relevant, relevant. and not disregarded. Right. Yes. Right. And, um, and slavery is the biggest example of that, that I can see culture changed, laws changed, everything changed. And by God, the church had to get on board with that. And, um, I don't think it's gone far enough for repenting for its, um, complicity in that, right. um, in that reality. So, so Shannon, you did a great job of kind of bringing us up to speed on the history of the purity movement. I would go back even further and say that it was, um, it was rooted in the temperance movement of the early ah. 1900s where abstinence from alcohol was the thing. And everyone was so focused on abstinence from that, that um, sex outside of marriage was just kind of a norm and not questioned. Um, we often think of like Victorian culture being so stodgy and reserved. Straight laced. Um, it really wasn't. So then you come out of corset busters. Yes, yes. <laughs> era of corset busters. Right. So you come out of the temperance movement. Um, and and you are right that the 60s and the 70s and free love and all of that stuff um swung the pendulum um from, from the reaction to the temperance movement, right? So history just kind of goes back and forth. A big piece that I want to add is our governments influence in the purity movement. So President Reagan passed a law that provided millions of dollars in abstinence education. Mm -hmm. And those dollars were available to faith communities. So much for separation of church and state. Mm -hmm. This money could only be used if the organization and the curriculum met very specific guidelines for what abstinence education is. And lo and behold, uh, the curriculum that came out uh, primarily in True Love Weights, that was the first curriculum that came into being that was really hot stuff. And that came out in 1992. Um, all of the, the curriculum met those government guidelines okay. uh, so that they could receive government funding and true love weights. And those organizations did receive government funding. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that was something really interesting that I didn't know our government's complicity or kind of, uh, uh, impetus in, in bringing this movement to light. Yep. I can remember going to an abstinence conference in Washington, mm -hmm. DC. Yep. I want to say in like 1994, something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. So, so that would have been right around the time when it was really gaining steam and true love weights as an organization became an international organization with the 
the uh, wife of the president of Uganda getting on board with it after its after its conception was what I was going to say. <laughs> See what I pun did there? Intended. Yeah, fun. <laughs> yeah. So so then we get to the place where we are today, where the purity movement has been around since 1992, and those kids who were in the movement are now in relationships. Many of them married, having their own kids, and so they are questioning how am I going to teach my kids? And they're coming to terms with the purity movement and its promises being a bunch of crap that didn't come true for them. Well, so yep. time out. And would we say the generation, it, basically those in their thirties and forties is yep. about a 20 year span of time. Yes. yes. So let me say that this is not universal. Nothing in this world is the purity movement was really great for some people and right. God bless you. And so what I am speaking about specifically are people who adopted an abstinence only shame based ethic. That's the key shame based shame based. And we'll get into that in, in just a minute and, and experienced negative consequences because of that, because of that adoption of, um, of that ethic. Yeah. Um, and some of the, some of the, the negativity that came from that, um, is as severe as symptoms that mimic PTSD when being in sexual, sexual situations, sexual relationships, even with a spouse, because sex became equated with shame in yes. these teachings. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly what I've seen is women, especially, because I think that women got the brunt of it. We'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. We're just taught to dial your sexual volume knob as low as you can get it. Flee well, from sexual I, immorality. So I don't even think that women were taught to dial it down. It was assumed that women didn't have any that sexual they, urges. That, 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 that there was just an, a, a permanent off switch. Yes. And that they were responsible for men and for keeping it off for keeping for, for not letting the good boy go astray. So the woman and how she presented herself was primary in keeping our boys safe and pure. So they were considered the gatekeepers of sexual Absolutely. And they could not let any eke out for fear that that would taint their relationship and cause God to withhold his blessing on their marriage. Yep. That is the interpretation that I have seen over and over again. When a couple who's been married over 20 years is sitting in my office and she's crying because they went too far two weeks before the wedding in the back seat of the car. And now she just feels like they've never had God's blessing. It's like, you really think that God is that mean and that tit for tat? No pun intended. Um, it just, it's yeah. shocking to me. That because make the interpretation to the, to that extreme, because. Yeah, so because ahead. that is, because that is ultimately a question of who God is and how we relate to God. So the purity movement painted this picture of God who is retributive in nature, that God is going to punish you if you do wrong and God will only bless you if you do right. Well, what is right? Well, right is not having sex until you're married. 
I would ask, what is sex? What are we talking about? Because again, the continuum, I, I just got finished watching the show on uh, Amazon Prime called Shiny Happy People about the Duggars and yeah. their kind of fundamentalism. So their faith requires them to not kiss until they are pronounced husband and wife, which is dangerous. Dangerous. dangerous i know the kids is designed to tell you if their dna is compatible to yours if it's not they won't taste or smell good to my, you at all oh, if they're irresistible that's happen. a good sign right yeah so then on the other end of the spectrum um during the the purity movement anal sex became very popular among youth because she's still a virgin she's still a virgin her hymen is still intact and she can't get pregnant. Right, right. Oral sex too. It's it's complicated. Yeah, yeah. Defining yeah. sex. Yeah. It, yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's way complicated. Yeah. And then the other part of that, don't have sex until marriage. We can get into questions of what marriage is, but maybe we'll save that for episode 42. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I am not being paid by the episode, by the way. So, I mean, I just like talking about this stuff. <laughs> so Angie, tell us what the main teachings of the purity movement consisted of, because there are some people who honestly don't know what we're referring to. Maybe they yeah. weren't raised in church or that kind of culture. So what were it the was, teachings? It was fantastic that one of my reading professors didn't know about it, grew up on the West coast. And she's like, what is this purity movement stuff that you're talking about? And then when she read it, she's like, you're kidding me. <laughs> and you know what word comes to my mind is unscathed. She was unscathed she was by unscathed. it all. And she, How beautiful. yes, she is amazing. Right. So, so let me just um, highlight big, uh, six big segments of purity movement teaching. First of all, is the theological teaching and the theology is presented as pretty literal. God says, avoid sexual immorality, which means sex before marriage. And that's supported by all kinds of, uh, of Bible verses that I worked on with my project. Um, the second piece is really kind of beautiful. Um, talking about God's design of our bodies and how our bodies were created to have sex only within marriage. And it will only be beautiful within marriage. Um, talking about and teaching, um, at least in some of the, the work that I did, you know, how does the penis work? What is the vagina? I mean, it's more than this just perfunctory act. However, nobody ever taught about the clitoris and the creation <laughs> of the clitoris, which has one purpose. What is that purpose, Shannon? Pleasure. Pleasure. I, I distinctly remember doing a weekend with a group down in Houston or wherever. And when I, because you say that no one ever talked about the clitoris, I did. Uh, yeah. but, but I remember being pulled aside and saying, now, why would you feel the need to educate kids about that? And it's like, so they can be good lovers someday? So they can know how their body functions? Like what, why would I exclude that? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. Good, Shannon. Good job. Clitoris. It makes me angry. It makes me angry that anyone could say that they have taught young people about sex without even mentioning the clitoris. Yeah. Oh, it sure talked about male orgasm a lot though. Yeah. Oh yeah. You knew the penis up and down, yeah. but yeah. 
clitoris and all around baby too, too intimate can't go there right so one of the next no wonder segments. there's so many angry wives on the planet you think right <laughs> um so one of the next teachings would be the medical consequences and i am confident that the presenters looked for the grossest slides at the time right slide projectors um the grossest pictures of chlamydia infected penis heads and um talked about you know the the kings of the past who went crazy because of syphilis um hpv will kill you um to to put the fear of god in them Right. And even saying that pregnancy is the least of the consequences, these things will kill you. It's like right. that um, from Mean Girls. I used this this like one minute clip of the gym teacher teaching sex to the high schoolers, and he says, "If you have sex, you will get chlamydia and you will die. Don't <laughs> do it." And then he pulls out a basket and says, "Here, take some rubbers." It's awesome. <laughs> now, let's acknowledge that that's not church-based. That's Tina Fey, and it's damn funny. <laughs> <laughs> so so those medical consequences. Um, sometimes uh, abstinence educators will talk about how the media portrays sex um, in a very permissive way, and it is our job as the gatekeepers, as the Christians, as the pure ones, as the holy ones, to reject all of those messages from the media. Um, and then another component would often be the emotional impact. So what is the emotional impact of giving your virginity to someone and them not talking to you at school on Monday morning? Like those scenarios of, uh, of the emotional impact of becoming sexually involved outside of marriage and right. it's always worst case right right yeah 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 and in other words we set them up to feel like shameful whores before it ever even totally happens yep yeah yep yeah yeah and and somewhere in all of this is that um is like the oh i guess in the medical the medical consequences is the toothbrush skit do you remember that like, oh yeah brush your teeth and then spit in a cup and then spit pass the down, pass it down. And everybody spits into the cup. And then at the end, this is what you're like after you've had multiple sexual partners, who wants to drink this? I, I did it. I confess. Shut oh. up. You drank it. No, no. Oh. I, I, I use that as part oh. of my teachings completely okay. unaware. I did too. Damaging. Okay. Oh my you God. I thought you meant you drank it. You drank. Oh, spit. <laughs> I was gonna yeah. say, I don't know, we can be friends anymore. <laughs> and then you're certainly not gonna kiss me on the mouth right. ever. <laughs> I know, no holy kiss for you. <laughs> okay, <laughs> finally, the big, the the pinnacle of of uh, abstinence education and the purity movement is making the commitment to God. Yes, the this day, certificate. There is a certificate. Um, that I don't know, you hung on your wall or something. I think actually in, in you, the most stringent cultures, they would go home and give it to their dad. Girls, And, and you were to dad. put it in an envelope and give it to your 
spouse on your wedding day right that this is my gift to you now can you imagine how the spouse who was not exposed to the purity movement and had had previous experience as most people have how they received that and it's like uh oh uh, I, I, I got you a ballpoint pen <laughs> I got you a box of chocolates. I can't yeah. give you my virginity, but here you go. Yeah. Yeah. And, Awkward. Uh, and after a, a certain number of years, I have it in my research here. Um, the number of students who had signed that pledge through true love weights was in the millions. Yeah. And so then what happens when 80% of those students who signed that pledge I would say under a whole lot of social pressure and even coercion, don't keep that pledge. Felt like big fat failures, spiritually, Mm -hmm. sexually, relationally, emotionally. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it had such a number on their Mm self-esteem. So in light of this generation feeling like failures, what do we do as the church? How do we respond? And that was was one of my primary questions. What do we do now? And given that percentage is so large a number, we would be remiss as a society to not study this carefully oh, and, yeah. and recognize the damage that we've done. I almost feel like the responsibility that I have often felt was kind of like how a prison guard from Auschwitz may have felt after World War II. It's like, wait, wait, what was I a part of? What, what did, what kind mm-hmm. of damage did I do? What, what prejudices did I have? Mm-hmm. What, did, what Kool-Aid did I drink? What mm-hmm. Kool-Aid did I serve? How did I strip people of their dignity? Mm-hmm. How did I strip people of their sexual confidence? Maybe that's why I wanted to do this podcast called Sexual Confidence on Tap. Yeah, because thanks. I want to give back yeah. what I fear I may have unintentionally stolen in the earliest yeah. years of my ministry. So as I have evolved, I have hoped other people would evolve And thank you for leading this conversation, Angie, because here's what I have observed. Even if they're not part of the 80% that signed the pledge certificate and failed and had sex outside of marriage, oftentimes when I'm working with a couple, the one who did save sex until marriage will just come across as so legalistic and angry that their mate didn't do the same thing and judgmental. And when I try to lift the veil and show them that those attitudes that are not full of mercy, that are not full of grace, that are not full of unconditional love, that are just full of, quite frankly, pride and and arrogance and judgment, that that's as much of a part of the dynamic that they're wrestling with as the other person's sexual misdeeds before they ever even met, it's shocking to them. Because they have it in their head that I did it right. I did it right. Uh-huh. My mate didn't do it right. And they feel the right to resent them for it. So no matter yeah. which side of the equation you're on, the, the side that supposedly did it right or the side that tried to do it right and failed, there's damage. No matter yeah. how you slice it, yeah. there is damage. So thanks for hanging with us for the entire first part of this series. I promise there's a lot more to come. So continue, yep. no pun intended. Uh, but there is a lot more to come. 
in regard to messy sex. <laughs> but what I'm most excited about is I think that these conversations above all else will bring glory to God. Yeah. Because just recognizing how much we as mankind have woven into this with our own beliefs and norms and, you know, like I said, prejudices and bigotries and all the things that we ourselves have woven into it. I feel like we're the ones who muddied the waters. We we are the ones who tainted the Kool-Aid and made it undrinkable. Um, So the opportunity to undo some of that damage and to usher in God's healing and his grace and his mercy and his unconditional love is a an opportunity that I'm very, very grateful for. So with that, we're going to wrap up this part one and we hope you'll tune in for all the other parts this summer. Just to let you know, if you are thinking that you need to have much deeper, richer conversations about your personal sexual journey, then I want to urge you to go to shannonethridge.com and click on the workshops link and consider attending our workshop where eight to 10 women from all different walks of life will go deep, deep, deep into their own stories and derive meaning and purpose and a vision for the future. And it doesn't matter whether you've acted out in the past or whether you've been shut down in the past, no matter where you are on this spectrum, we invite you to come to Women at the Well. So we thank you for tuning in to another episode of Sexual Confidence on Tap with Shannon Etheridge and friends. We love you for listening. And we thank you for tapping on us.